0: And then if you'll remember, just for a few brief moments, our message from last week, just in an effort to set the stage and context for where we're going this morning, we'll remember our last message was about what? Turning from fear to faith. Coming out of chapter number 13, Christ has given some very difficult and sobering teachings. And the reality that Jesus will soon depart from his disciples is coming to full fruition. And the disciples... Are struggling. There's a lot of uncertainty about this situation. And so we'll see Christ once again in our text this morning come alongside his disciples as the good shepherd and urge them to once again to let not their hearts be troubled as we looked at last week. Again, in this upper room discourse, he has challenged them. There's a number of human emotions that they're feeling, but again, Jesus is seeking to anchor their hearts, their minds around his person and his work by powerfully proclaiming in verse six that he is what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. That's sixth of, of, of the seven I am statements that we will see through the gospel of John. And so we finished our text last week in verse number 11 with this strong call and challenge from Christ to simply do what? Believe. To believe. And so we continue our way through chapter 14 and we will cover just three simple verses this morning in an effort to prepare our hearts and our minds for the Lord's table this morning. So with that context in mind, let's read verses 12, 13, and 14. Follow with me as I read. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The message this morning is turning faith into action, a call to fellowship. Turning faith into action, a call to fellowship. The big idea of our text this morning is this. All those who truly believe in Jesus will be characterized by true fellowship of Jesus. One more time, the big idea of our text this morning, all those who truly believe in Jesus will be characterized by true fellowship of Jesus. You see, in this passage, as we examine these words of Jesus to his disciples in these final moments here on earth, we see a conflict arise, right? This this conflict was true for them and it certainly is a conflict that we battle even today, thousands of years later. You see, friends, according to Jesus, belief in Jesus was a call to action, not just a call to accolades. It was a call to fellowship. not just a call to fame. It was a call to discipleship, not a call to dictatorship, as was the many expectations of the disciples, right? In a parallel passage in Luke, we see the disciples just before the Lord's table. What did they break out in an argument about who was going to be the greatest? Many people followed Christ through the Gospel of John because of what they thought they could gain as a result of being connected with Christ. It's not about accolades. It's not about fame. It's not about position or status. It's about fellowship. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. So I believe the definition... Of fellowship that we will see Christ communicate stands in stark contrast to this American or Western version of Christianity that we see today in our midst. You see, Christ was communicating to them once again their sobering reality that his departure was imminent, and he was seeking to anchor them around some core truths in the wake of this separation. Again, do you feel the tension? I want us to build upon the text as we work our way through chapter number 14. The wrestling with this idea again that Christ will be separating from them soon. And again, where he is proclaimed in verse, or chapter 13 that where he's going, they cannot come, but he is the way. They know the way. They know the way to the Father because they know Christ was our idea last week. So this morning, we're just gonna look at Two simple key evidences of true fellowship in our text this morning. And remember this big idea all those who truly believe in Jesus will be characterized by true fellowship of Jesus. So here we have in verse number 12, Christ proclaims, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works. That I do. The first point this morning that we'll look at is this a true follower of Christ will do the works of Jesus. A true follower of Christ will do the works of who? Of Jesus. We have in verse 12 what we call this double amen statement of Jesus. We see this often in the Gospels, right? We'll see this phrase, verily, verily, translation may see. ESV says, truly, truly. The NIV even says, or other translations, I tell you the truth. This is Christ trying to raise the awareness around what he's about to teach and what will come after this statement. He's gathering their attention. He's saying, hey, listen up to these words that I'm about to speak into your life. So the words that follow this structure should always be taken as particularly important statements of Jesus. And again, we'll see that throughout the Gospel of John. So then what exactly is the significance of this statement here in verse number 12? Well, to answer that, let's quickly just remember back to chapter 13 once again. Dave, Andy did such a good with that chapter. I want to point back to it a few times just to remember our context. He spoke in, again, some tough, sobering realities One of you will betray me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter, despite all your loyal optimism, you're gonna deny me three times. And as such, their hearts again are heavy. He's anchored them in this I state, I am statement. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so he continues to build them back up. He gives further insight now into these post-resurrection dynamics as he looks forward to the future, even beyond his earthly ministry, even beyond the disciples. And he's he's the great visionary, casting vision behind this group of disciples and saying there's something bigger coming. And my ministry and your impact in this world is going to be far-reaching decades and hundreds and thousands of years later. This is the benefit that we have of being here today in 2018 and seeing all that Christ has done, all that the disciples were able to do through Christ. And Christ again is seeking to build them up, to stir them up, to encourage their hearts that there is hope and there's more to come beyond this separation. So, again, in a similar way to our text this morning, this Sunday, we are called to belief once again. So, big shocker, right? This theme of belief is right here in the middle of these verses, in the flurry of all this emotion. And sorrow and distress that the disciples are confronted with once again their, what? Belief. We see this in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, what? Believes in me. This key central theme of the Gospel of John. So Jesus, once again, highlights it here as a priority. It's a centrality of belief. Everything hinges on belief recognizing and responding to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So we've seen this over and over again in the Gospel of John. We've been called to belief. Our belief has been challenged. The motive of our faith has been challenged. And through it all, Christ does what? He continues to call us to authentic, true belief. What is that? To recognize And respond to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Have you done that? We've seen chapter after chapter individuals and groups of people wrestle with this concept of who is Jesus? Is he just a good prophet? Is he just a good teacher? Or is he who he said he was? The Messiah, the long-awaited for Messiah, Savior and Lord. So why, again, is Christ concerned with confronting our faith? I think we can get some further insight by taking just a quick peek over to a parallel passage to our text in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 22. Luke chapter number 22. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32. It says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But, that great conjunction, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, again, strengthen your brothers. So Christ, in this parallel passage, speaks directly to Peter, calls him by his pre-Christian name and says, Simon, Simon, Simon. Wake up to this reality that Satan is alive and well. Not only does he exist, but he has an active plot against you. He's demanded to have you. Why? So that he could sift you. He could separate you out of fellowship with me. This is what Jesus is trying to warn and challenge, and bring awareness to in the life of Peter. But then we have this great, again, Good Shepherd relational moment of Christ to Peter, and he says, but I have prayed for you, Christ says. And he prayed something very specifically. What did he pray for? He prayed for Peter's what? Faith, his belief that it would not fail. It's a beautiful reality that Christ has active prayer for us, for our faith. Though Although it may waver, although it may wane, although we may struggle with our faith through different situations and seasons of life, if we truly know Christ and we have recognized and responded to Him as Savior and Lord, our faith will be sustained by Christ. It cannot fail. That's a beautiful reality that no matter how deep the failure may be, And and Peter couldn't even fathom this reality that I would deny Christ, let alone once, not only three times. So friends, are we living in this reality that Satan wants to win the battle for their faith and ours? And so Christ reminds them of this reality. He reminds them of the importance of belief. He reminds them that their faith is not of their own. He alone initiates the grace to believe and He alone initiates the grace to keep on believing. It is the work of Christ to sustain our faith in His person and His work. Praise the Lord. Are you thankful for that reality? That's not up to you to be good enough. My faith is imperfect, but for Christ. So not only does Jesus remind them of the priority of belief, secondly, Jesus cast a vision for the future. Jesus cast a vision for the future. We see in verse 12 with the use of the word whoever. Although the disciples might be overcome with uncertainty, overwhelmed with these heavy words of their Messiah, Jesus was calling them to look beyond the present circumstances, to look beyond the human emotions, and to focus on what the future hope that they have in Christ. The future work that Christ was going to do in and through them. So with that said, most of our verbs here in our Three verses in our remaining passage are going to be in what the present future tense or excuse me, the future tense. Why? Because whoever believes in me or literally in verse 12, anyone who has faith. It gives the idea that it's not just about you in this little upper room where we're breaking bread and we're fellowshipping and I'm teaching you and I'm sharing my life with you. There's something beyond this and there's great hope and it stirs them up in this reality that they're going to be separated from Christ. So we ask, what is the significance of this truly, truly, verily, verily statement? In verse number 12, Jesus, in light of this post-resurrection context, casting vision for the future beyond his death on the cross, beyond his resurrection, beyond his ascension up into heaven, is casting a clear vision for the disciples. So although God will go on to do incredible things in and through them, and although they will ultimately give their lives for the cause of Christ, it's ultimately not about them. And it's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about this saving work that God is doing all across this world to draw others to Himself. So these words of Christ are intended for many, many more who will follow Christ in the days to come. And there is hope There's this opportunity for Christ to to bolster their faith in this reality. So here we are in the latter half of verse number 12. Let's read it again. Back to John chapter number 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. I don't know about you, but at first glance, this one's kind of a head scratcher, right? I mean, Christ is here with his disciples and they've just seen his earthly ministry and full fruition, right? I mean, let's reflect back. Chapter two, we saw Christ turn the water into wine. He reads the mind of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. He heals the official son in John 4. He healed the invalid man who had been in this state, a lame state, for 38 years we see that in John 5. He fed the multitudes of people, over 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes in John 5. He walked on water John 6. He healed the man born blind in John 9. Of course, we can't forget about the raising of Lazarus all the way back in just a few chapters ago in, in John chapter number 11. So what is Christ telling us he's really going to do? Are we expected to do these works and not only these works, but greater works? A head-scratcher. So we, again, have the benefit of context as we look at the book of Acts, and we no doubt will know that the disciples will go on in the coming chapters and verses, and even as they see the infancy of the church grow to maturity, that these disciples will do great things. They will teach about the Holy Spirit, they will receive the Holy, Holy Spirit, this, this helper, again, that Christ is even going to be talking about here in our next passage, right? And so we're excited to see the Holy Spirit come on the scene. He will send his disciples to go and do significant works of making disciples of all nations. But remember, in verse number 12, these two words, whoever and anyone, whoever and anyone, the expected audience that Christ is speaking to here goes far beyond this little band of sorrowing followers that he has in front of him, these disciples, these 12 ordinary men. It spans thousands of years in this, these words they go straight to us, but not only to us, but to generations to come that as we're tasked and called and challenged to do the works that I do, Christ says. So what then does Jesus really have in mind here when he says, do the works that I do and greater works that these will he do? Let's look back at verse number 11 to help us with some immediate context. Verse number 11 says, what believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. What has been the stated purpose of these signs, miracles, and wonders that Jesus has done throughout his early ministry, earthly ministry? What was the stated purpose so that they would what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God, right? We, we see that in chapter 20, verse number 31. But well, let's not forget verse 30. Now, Jesus is did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that are recorded for us. These are written, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So what was the stated purpose? Was it not to validate His Messiahship. Was it not so that the world would have no doubt that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, sent down from the Father to do his work on a mission, to give his life a ransom for many? So just as the works that Christ did were to validate his Messiahship, The works that we are to do post-resurrection as we've been called and commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. The works that the Spirit will do in and through the disciples. The works that the Spirit will do in and through us as disciples even today are to do what? To validate the work of Jesus so that others could see our life and see the works of our hands through the grace of Jesus and say, Jesus is real. We're going to see that in John 17, just in a few chapters. By how we interact and relate to each other and the world, we have an opportunity to validate that Jesus really is who He said He is. So the works, these miracles, they had a purpose. They had a meaning or or a function. What was it? So that we would believe. Verse 11, believe me, Jesus says. And if my words aren't enough, what does Jesus say? Believe the works that I've done. And so works have a powerful vehicle to help guide our faith towards Christ as he's drawing us to himself. These works are about to climax in Christ's life. Of all the ones that I just listed throughout the Gospel of John, there's still a greater work that is to come as he goes to the cross and as he is buried. He is going to raise again on the third day, right? We see that in 1 Corinthians 15 4, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance to what? The scriptures. We see all the way back in John the Baptist ministry, chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. And we see in chapter 12, verse 32, just a couple chapters back, and then just a couple, uh, excuse me, it says this, he states, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to who? Myself. So, this is the greatest work that Christ will do. Even beyond raising Lazarus from the dead, healing the blind, healing the lame, feeding the thousands with very little. All these works combined are going to climax with Christ and his resurrection. So, his death and the resurrection that are going to come in the Gospel of John and the drawing of all people to himself this is the beauty of the Gospel. This is the works that we are gonna be entrusted with as his followers, as his disciples. And we're gonna see the effect of that resurrection power, the sending of the spirit. We're gonna see thousands of believers being saved and added to the church at Pentecost. We're gonna see the faithfulness of the apostles as they, by God's grace, establish the church and spread the gospel Uh, throughout the ends of the earth. So here we are. Although Jesus will soon depart from his beloved disciples, he will still very much be active and in mission and on mission with his disciples. Let's read our final two verses here as we get some further clarity around what this looks like for us to be on mission with Christ and the works that we will do and the greater works that we'll have the opportunity to steward in the days ahead. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. This is almost the why. This is literally the how that we have the opportunity to to be entrusted with the things that Christ has done and greater things that we will do. It's because of Christ's separation from this earth that he sends the Spirit and he pours it out upon those believers that we can go out and we see this incredible spread like wildfire, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus speaks to his disciples once again. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So how then are these things greater? I don't know about you, but I'm going to clearly affirm that although the disciples did some incredible things as apostles through the Spirit's power, healings and such, that we will not necessarily do greater physical signs that Christ has done through the Gospel of John, but rather this will be a pointing to the future of the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. You say, Eric, that doesn't sound all that incredible, but think about this. For the first time in the history of mankind, we will have the opportunity by the grace of God to see souls drawn to Himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, seeing faith expressed in the finished work of Christ for the first time. Instead of anticipation, they're looking back and saying, it is finished. Christ truly was who he said he was. There is an empty tomb. And so what? Our faith is expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is an incredible, great, and new, and unique thing that we have in front of us. So the preaching of Christ and him crucified, the proclamation of the gospel, in a sense, this will achieve far greater numbers of people than Jesus ever saw or was able to reach in his earthly ministry, and we will do this through what? The work of Jesus on the cross through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a great and new and unique and wonderful work that we have the opportunity to be a part of. And so we have Ephesians 2, verse number 10, for we are his what workmanship, created In Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. Our second point this morning that we're gonna look at, a true follower of Christ will pursue the glory of God through relationship with Jesus. A true follower of Christ will pursue the glory of God through relationship with Jesus. We see this in our final Two verses, let's read verse 13 to 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We need to be careful that these verses here are not misunderstood for obvious reasons, right? If we're not careful, we can... Uh, have some very poor theology that's promoted through a misunderstanding of these two verses. So with that in mind, I want to make just a few clarifying points, right? The priority here in these two verses, it's not in the activity of asking. The priority here is not in the activity of asking. These verses are not concerned primarily on the one asking. This isn't Jesus, to be clear again, perpetuating a sort of prosperity gospel, a name and claim and a blab and glab it type of theology a prayer. But rather, Jesus is drawing these disciples that gathered around this upper room who are struggling with understanding Jesus. And as such, Jesus is calling them to be on mission with who? With Jesus. Just as he called them to believe in him, to express faith in him, to trust him, he is doing in a new way by introducing this idea of being in prayer with Jesus. And in being in prayer, you're in relationship with Jesus and you can be in, on mission with Jesus. John 5, verse number 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 14, 31, but I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So then a true follower of Jesus, just as Christ was concerned about the will and the glory of the Father, a true follower of Jesus will absolutely be concerned about glorifying the Father in and through his or her life. And so when we pray, it's not about me. When I ask, it's not about me. It's about the glory of the Father. It's about His will being done in and through my life. So that's the right theology, if you will, of these two verses. So the glory of the Father becomes, I'll call it this, the filter for the whatever you ask in verse 13, and the filter for the ask anything in verse 14. The glory of the Father. If I can't ask or seek or knock or pray or petition anything from the Lord that doesn't bring Him glory, it's not at the will of the Father. It becomes this filter that we can sift our desires, our thoughts, our mind, our relationship with Christ through because ultimately that's what our lives are about. That's what our good works are about. Matthew 5.16 We do good works. Why? So that we could bring and reflect glory back to the Father. It's the goal. It's the purpose. It is our aim and pursuit, the glory of God in this world. It is what we are passionate about. It is what we are consumed about. We live, we act, we pray for one purpose, the glory of God in and through our life. And if that's not a gut check, I don't know what is. Friends, are you living in light of the reality that God wants glory in and through? Whether therefore I eat or drink or whatever I do, do all to the glory of God. There is no insignificant thing. There is no insignificant moment. There is no insignificant time or relationship or response or thought in my life. It all has an opportunity to be redeemed for the glory of God. The glory of God. So, friends, I wonder is your life lived for His name? When others see you interact in this world, at your place of employment, even inside or outside of the church, do you live for the fame of Christ? Or do you try to somehow position or prop yourself up to get the spotlight? And ultimately, it is the glory of the Father and us being overwhelmed with that reality that draws us into prayer and relationship with Christ. Jesus lived, excuse me, in the will of the Father. Every moment, he was constantly checking his own heart and saying, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus lived in light of the will of the Father. How much more should these disciples, both then and now to us, we should too be expected to live in this way in light of the will and the glory of the Father. This should be our highest goal. We should place the highest premium on the glory of God in our life. There's two additional aspects that are pointed out in this act of prayer. One, or first Let's look at we are to pray in what Jesus's name. We're to pray in Jesus's name. What is the significance here? The fact that Jesus points this out is a clear reminder to the disciples that Jesus is the power behind the prayer. Not only is he the power behind the prayer, but secondly, Jesus will remain active in and through his disciples to bring maximum glory to the Father. So Jesus, in this passage, is foreshadowing his separation, but he's also bolstering their faith once again and saying, look, I may be separated from you physically, but let me tell you, I still will be active in and through you. I will be with you. And we're going to see just in a couple verses that he's going to send this helper to do that work. So Jesus... Is staying active. We see this in verse number 13 with the phrase, he says what? This I will do. Verse 14, he says, I will do it. He doesn't say, pray to me in my name and you will do it. He didn't say that, right? He didn't say, pray to me in my name and you will do it. No, Christ says, pray to me, pray in my name for the glory of the Father and I am going to do it in and through you. Say, Eric, that might be an insignificant nuance, but I think it's very, very important because it places us in the proper posture and disposition before our Lord. You see, God doesn't need me. I'm nothing special. I don't have anything to offer to God. I'm just a lump of clay. Right? And until we get to that reality and get over ourselves and understand, I bring nothing to the table in salvation. He draws, He saves, He sustains. It is Christ in and through me for His glory that I can do anything of good that would last for eternity. So Christ remains active in and through these disciples Will that not bolster their faith as they're struggling with the uncertainty of the separation? Yeah, he's going to be gone physically, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to work in and through you. So these final two verses, Jesus is leaning in to his relationship with his disciples. Do you see him? He's, he's giving them hard sayings. He's kind of giving them gentle rebukes. Philip has just given, asked a ridiculous question in verse number eight when he said, you know, Christ, just show us the Father and it will be enough for us. I mean, these these guys are just not getting it, right? And so Jesus does what? He, He gathers them around once again and he leans in and he has this good shepherd, gentle moment and he reteaches what this relationship is about. The priorities, the focus points, this priority of prayer and what it does to our relationship, what our posture should be before the Lord and how ultimately we should be living for the glory of God. So, Philip, we see in this context this lingering question of Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And so Jesus, in his explanation through these few verses, is alluding, and this is going to be in my paraphrased question, right? He's saying back to Philip through these teaching opportunities. He's simply saying, Am I enough for you, Philip? Is my relationship with you enough? what I have taught, what I have committed, and ultimately what I'm going to commission you to do once I've ascended up into heaven, am I going to be enough for you? Jesus' desire here in this text is that His followers understand the importance of staying on mission, His mission. Not their expectations, not what they think Christ should be doing at this moment, that they stay on mission, Christ's mission. That he would draw all men to himself. So although this separation from Christ, from his followers, it's going to shake their faith to the core. There is hope. Christ will continue to work in and through his disciples. He will send his helper, and we will see uh, in our next passage next week, Christ will continue to gather a bride, his church, of which the gates of hell will not prevail, and he will continue this work of spreading his name to the nations as we are faithful to go and make disciples. So this morning, let's remember that all those who truly believe in Jesus It will be characterized by true fellowship of Jesus. This fellowship is going to be characterized by those who do the works of Jesus, who preach Christ and Him crucified, and humbly and graciously are willing to be used by God to do His work, to spread His name and His fame to the nations, and ultimately to our sphere of influence, to our home, to our kids, to our neighborhood, to our co-workers. Are we doing the works of Jesus this morning? Are we sharing? Are we living? Are we loving? Are we putting Christ on display for our sphere of influence? So Those true followers will be doing the works of Jesus and they will be pursuing the glory of God in their lives as humble, dependent disciples who boldly proclaim and have nothing else to proclaim but to say this, Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. Let's bow our heads. We'll close in a word of prayer. We're going to ask Andy to come and lead us in that song. Hallelujah for the cross as we transition to our Lord's table time. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of Christ. That we have been made right in your eyes because of the shed blood of Christ. Our relationship has been made whole because of Christ. We've been adopted into your family, been made heirs to your kingdom because of Christ. We've been ushered out of darkness into light. Our identity as sons of disobedience has been changed to be sons of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You've done a great work, and we thank you for it. And so, Father, this morning our response is only gratitude. It's only thankfulness. It's only what we can, can proclaim from our sinful lips is hallelujah for the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name.